Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. And God's people said? Amen. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing unto him, sing psalms unto him, talk ye of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Many are they who say there is no God, that God does not see. Many rise up that trouble your people who slay the widow and the fatherless and the sojourner. Many pass laws and regulations and increase taxes to crush the poor and trouble the righteous, and they say they will get away with it because there's no God who will intervene and save. But you, O Lord, are our shield, you are our glory, and you lift up our heads. Salvation belongs to you alone, and so we cry out to you alone. How long will you not hear the cries of the innocent? How long, O Lord, will you allow the murderous holocaust of abortion in our land? How long, O Lord, will you allow our insolence in the high places, our bribery and payoffs, our lies and our theft, our abominations under every green tree, every strip mall, every movie theater, every pride parade? Rise up, O Lord, and fight for us. Break out the teeth of the lions. Strike them on their cheek so that they know there is a God in heaven, so that they know that Jesus lives and Jesus is Lord. We will not fear if the ungodly surround us with taunts and jeers and threats. We will rest in you. We will sleep soundly every night because we worship you, our Father, in the name of Jesus Christ alone and by the power of his spirit, world without end. And amen. Amen. Someone has said that humility is not thinking less of yourself so much as it is thinking of yourself less. Arrogance and pride take many devious forms. Of course, it can take the form of vanity, being captured by your own beauty, your own brilliance, your own strength, your own achievements. That's certainly one kind of self-worship that must be confessed and forsaken. But arrogance and pride can also show up in the form of anxiety or fear or depression. Instead of obsessing over how good you are, the obsession is inverted. The self-worship is aimed at your own failures or weaknesses or sour feelings. But the common element is the constant mirror checking. You fail and look to yourself. Look at yourself wallowing in guilt and shame and blame. You worry and fear looking to yourself ironically for some assurance in the face of the conviction that you're helpless. But you cannot help yourself out of those pits. And to look at yourself is to feed the problem. But the bottom line is simply that you are not that important. Your feelings are not that important. Your strengths and beauty and accomplishments are not that important. And neither are your failures, your fears, or your feelings. So put all your mirrors away. In fact, for many 
internal worries and fears and anxieties, you feed them precisely by thinking about them. You encourage them by paying attention to them. You give them life by lifting the lid of your heart to examine them again. The same thing happens sometimes when you talk about your thoughts and feelings. Of course, it is sometimes helpful and needful to seek advice and counsel. But use the 30-second rule of thumb. If you can't articulate to yourself what your question is, then ignore it. If you have a question, then feel free, of course, to seek out an answer. But in the name of honesty or transparency, many people feel compelled to share their thoughts and feelings, which is just a great way to obsess over yourself some more. And then on top of that, to have your friends give you unhelpful attention. But thanks be to God, we aren't that important. And this is just another way of saying that Je what Jesus said. If you want to find your life, you must lose it. And whoever loses his life in Christ will find it a hundredfold. So as we prepare to confess our sins this morning, turn to before thee, let my cry come near on page 158. Amen. Amen. So as you're able, please kneel as we confess our sins together. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his namesake, that he might make his mighty power to be known. Father, we confess the sins of cowardice and pride. We confess that we are frequently cowardly precisely because of our pride. We worship ourselves and we immediately feel the insecurity of it. We know that we're not strong, not wise, not perfect, and then in our prideful insanity, we obsess further over ourselves, furthering the insecurity and cowardice. And then as troubles arise, we so easily panic and we are so easily anxious because we are powerless to stand in our own strength. Father, we confess this folly and insolence as sin. You are there all the time, and you are worthy of our worship and praise alone. And you always save your own. Father, wash us, cleanse us, make us clean. Help us to see where we do this, where we obsess over ourselves, our feelings, our failures, even our strengths. Help us to throw the mirror of self away and grant us more and more to see ourselves clearly and honestly in the mirror of your word. Father, we know that if we regard any sin in our hearts, this prayer will be ineffectual. So hear us now as we silently confess our individual sins to you. And Selah. We ask all this in Jesus' name. And amen. amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Isaiah 4, 2 says, In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. The declaration of forgiveness is God's great prison break. Outside of Christ, the world sits in the dungeon of guilt and shame. But the gospel is the good news that you are free and the shackles cannot hold you anymore. 
So I declare to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. The text this morning is from 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. These are the words of God. And we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Our Father in God, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Spirit's presence here today with us. I pray, Father, that as we consider these words, your Spirit would instruct and admonish us, show us the way that we should walk. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we've been considering the enticements of worldliness as John delineates them, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He says, love not the world, and then he defines the love of the world as being those three things, made up of those three things, and that was the snare we saw that tripped up our first parents, Adam and Eve. Those enticements are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. When we are drawn to such things, and they make us unrighteous, of course, we're drawn to them, we, we uh, we're, are fallen in our uh, father Adam, so we're already fallen, already unrighteous, but when we're drawn to them, we are drawn further into unrighteousness. But at the same time, we want to cling to our deep need to be righteous, our deep need to be in the right. And this results in our lying to ourselves. So in the first instance, we are fallen, we are unrighteous, we are ensnared by worldliness, but at the same time, created in the image of God, we want to be upright, we want to be righteous. And so consequently, faced with this conundrum, we lie. We tell ourselves, well, actually we are, uh, we are righteous, this, what we're doing is really right. Now this self-deception is a radical self-deception, it's a radical problem. The word radical comes from the Latin word radix, which means root. So a radical problem is a problem at the root. It's, it's a problem right at the beginning of everything. So our dilemma is the death grip of lust and our consequent lying about it. It's the death grip, the death grip of lust, the death grip of desire that has us by the throat, and then we lie about it. We tell ourselves stories about it. And the, the only alternative to this, the only possible alternative to this is life from the dead. We have to be resurrected from this state of self-deception. We have to be resurrected from this condition of, of sin, this condition of death that we're in. And so our text, the Christian gospel, the Christian life, the Christian worldview, and the Christian everything else, if it's Christian, then this is uh, what it's all about, are all encompassed by the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything is encompassed by that, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything revolves around who he is, and everything revolves around what he did. Who is this Jesus? What did he accomplish through his life, death, and resurrection? Who is this, and what did he do? Who is this and what did he do? He is God incarnate and he died for our sins. He was buried, he rose again from the dead in accordance with the scriptures and he ascended on high. That's who he is and what he did. Now, what do we as Christians know? 
All of this is in verse 20. We know in the first instance that the Son of God is come. We know that the Son of God is come. We were in darkness, but he came in order to give us light. We're going to consider the importance of light in 1 John in a subsequent message. We were in darkness, but he came in order to give us light. We were in ignorance, but he came to give us an understanding. He came to make us understand. And what is that understanding? He came to give us an understanding of the one who came, e.g., that we may know him that is true. Also, verse 20, he came so that we might understand why he had to come. He came so that we could comprehend why it was necessary for a Messiah, why it was necessary for a Christ to come. If we know this, then we know that we are in him that is true, that is to say, in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This, John says, is the true God, and this, John says, is eternal life. And he could have added to this if he'd wanted to, but I repeat myself. When he says, this is the true God, this is eternal life, he is not saying the true God is here and eternal life is right next to it. He's not putting the true God and eternal life side by side on a shelf. He is saying it one way and then he is saying it another. This is the true God. This is eternal life. The Lord Jesus Christ is the true God. The Lord Jesus Christ is eternal life. They are not side by side. They are the same thing. The true and living God is our life. Now, when the living God came down to us, which is what we have in the Messiah, what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ coming to us, life came down to us. Life came down to us. Not only so, but this life has been mediated to us in a particular way. And John is very careful to describe to us how this happens. In 1 John chapter 1, He's talking, he's talking about life through the whole book, just as he is talking about light through the whole book. He's talking about love through the whole book. That's why we're treating this book this way. In 1 John 1, verses 1 and 2, follow me closely here. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, of the word of life. There it is. Of the word of life. For the life was manifested. And we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. So what do we have? The word of life came down, it says. The word of life came down and the apostles touched him. They handled him. When, they, when he was asleep in the boat, somebody went and shook him. They touched him. They handled him. This life was manifested to them and they saw it. Having seen it, they bore witness to the life, and the, and the result of this witness, this testimony, is that eternal life is shown to us. This life comes down from heaven and is manifested. That was 2,000 years ago. This life comes down from heaven and is manifested 2,000 years ago. That is step one. This eternal life is seen and testified to. That is step two. This life that came down from heaven also comes down through the centuries. There's, there are two motions here. Down from heaven, 2,000 years ago, down through the centuries since that time. 
The power of the incarnation was the Holy Spirit of God. We are told expressly that when Mary conceived, it was the, it was the power of the Holy Spirit overshadowing her. The incarnation was the result of the work of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, and so it was that Jesus Christ became incarnate. Jesus Christ was God in flesh, God with us. So the Holy Spirit is the, is the one who did this thing 2,000 years ago. But the power of the apostolic witness and the power of the apostolic testimony is also the work of the Holy Spirit of God. And it's, a, it's the same Holy Spirit, and it is the same life. It's not a different life. It's not life firsthand, and then all of you guys being a day late, being, being late to the party, all of you guys get a second-rate or a third-rate life. No, it's all the same life. This is the true God. This is true life. This is eternal life, and it's the Holy Spirit who causes this life to be made manifest in our midst 2,000 years ago, and it's the same Spirit and the same life that is mediated to you and to me. So this is down from heaven and down through the centuries and down through the centuries to the end of the world. Notice in 1 John 2, 25, it says, and this is the promise that he hath promised us even eternal life. Now, who is this eternal life? It's the true God. This eternal life is the true God. And notice that it's promised to us. We are recipients of promises and so it is that we are trafficking in certainties. In 1 John 5.13, it says, why is, why is John writing all these things? These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. And notice this is not secondhand eternal life. This is not garage sale eternal life. This is the same eternal life. That ye may know that ye have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So we are recipients of promises, it says in chapter 2. So please note that God wants us to have an assurance of our salvation. I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. He wrote this, this book is given to us so that we might know. But this is knowledge of life, and this is knowledge of something that is pervasive. You don't find assurance of salvation in some little locked cupboard in your heart. No, you find it because life goes everywhere and life gets into everything. Life goes everywhere, life affects everything, life gets into everything. Now, suppose you're talking to a non-believer, suppose you've got a coworker or next door neighbor who's an agnostic or an atheist or an unbeliever of some sort, and he says, oh, this is just this is all airy-fairy stuff. You're, you're, just, you're just telling me, you're just giving me your spiel. You evangelicals have a spiel. spiel. The JWs have one. The Mormons have one. Everybody's got theirs, and this is yours. Now, how do we respond to that? How do we answer that? Not surprisingly, the Bible tells us. The Bible shows us the way. For some, this whole thing seems like it's long ago and far away. For some, it seems like I should begin any proclamation of the gospel with once upon a time. Once upon a time, there was this fairy story. So somebody appeared to some ancient guys way back when, made a big impression on them, and then those guys made some outlandish claims about it. 
How convenient, your friend says. How convenient that it all happened 2,000 years ago. And so the question presses in on us, how can we be sure about this so-called life? How do we know that this claim to life is not just our particular, peculiar, parochial claim and everybody's got one? Well, I would suggest that we should start somewhere else. Before we talk about life, we should talk about the backdrop of life in our situation. Let's start with something that we all have a lot of experience with and which is empirically demonstrable. Let's start with the raw fact of death. We're not talking about life up in heaven. If, if we're all up in heaven, if there'd been no fall, if there'd been no sin, we wouldn't be debating the reality of life up in heaven because it would be self-evident to everyone. Well, and now, but we're in a fallen world, and so people want to dispute this life. It's just, that's just your claim, and I don't buy it. That's just your book, and I don't buy it. So let's start with death. Everybody here is going to die. You're all going to die. Old men and women die. Babies die. Young people die. Why, why do we do that? Why? And somebody says, yeah, why does God make us do that? Why, why, why do we have to die? Well, God said, the day you eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, you shall surely die. It says in Ezekiel, the soul that sins shall die. It says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. And death is all pervasive. Death is everywhere you look. Death is not something that is really debatable. As Chesterton points out somewhere, original sin is the one doctrine that the Christian faith, the Christian faith has that can be empirically shown. Open a news site on your browser. Can't, can't you read? Let me give you every history book that's ever been written, and I want you to go about proving to me that man is basically good. Let me show you, uh, give you a copy of every newspaper ever published, and I, and I want you to show me that man is basically good. I want you to show me that man has basically got his act together. No, we are all messed up. We are a people of death. We live in death. We love death. We communicate death. We minister death. We have whole military organizations that are dedicated to distributing death. That's what we do. That's the way we are. Now, what does John say in chapter 3? In chapter 3, I want you to notice he's not just saying, and here's life, and this is our, our peculiar little claim. He's doing something uh, remarkable. In Je John chapter 3, verse 14, it says, we know that we have passed from death unto life. Now, there, this, is, this is a transition. There's a border crossing in, the, in this. There's a border crossing. We know that we passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby, we perceive, hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. What does this life look like? It looks like not hating people. It looks like laying down your life for people. It looks like not being a murderer in your heart. It looks like you're, you are uh, different than other people at the root. Okay, flip over to, um, to Philippians chapter 2. You can see the same thing. In Philippians chapter 2, it says in verse 14, do all things without murmuring and disputing. Do all things without moaning and complaining. 
All right, get that? That's the pitch there. Do everything without moaning and complaining. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. All right, so what the, our argument is a contrast. It's life over against death. It's life over against the death that everybody knows about. Everybody knows about our death. Everybody knows about our disease. Everybody knows about self-absorption. Everybody knows about malice. Everybody knows about hatred. We all live that way. And we all know about murmuring. We all know about complaining. We all know about the way of death. And notice that Paul says in Philippians, I want you to do everything without moaning and complaining so that you can shine like stars against the black backdrop. Imagine a, a Bible black sky. Imagine a sky like this. Bible black, and there's no stars in it. And then a handful of stars appear. Here's a trick question. Can you see them? Yes, you can see them. It's bright light over against a black backdrop. Live in a particular way, Paul is saying, that you might shine like lights in the world against a black backdrop. Don't complain. Don't moan. Don't complain. Don't, uh, don't hate. Don't be malicious. Don't do all these things. And not because it's don't, 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 don't. Rather, it's because of the presence of life, you're living in a particular way. More about that in a little bit. The con th this is an argument by contrast. This is an argument by contrast. We know that we've passed from death to life. The, con the comparison is the death that we used to be in and the life that we're in now. So before we discuss the eternal life that was manifested in the incarnation and is manifested in the proclamation of the gospel, we need to make sure that we understand the backdrop. That backdrop is the indisputable fact that we are surrounded by death on every hand. We are surrounded by hatred. We are surrounded by malice. We're surrounded by narcissism. We're surrounded by ego. We're, and we look every, everywhere we look, we find it. And when we look at our own hearts, we find it. We see it everywhere, right? You, you, this is not some tucked away secret. That backdrop is the indisputable fact that we are surrounded by death on every hand. We are born into it, and the death of selfishness is the air that we breathe. The death of selfishness is the air we breathe. The human race is bent and crooked timber, and we cannot build a straight house with it. We cannot build an upright house with it. That's the way we are. We are bent and crooked timber. So we are not arbitrarily saying, we Christians are not saying to the non-believers that our little mystery cult is special. A claim, no, we don't walk up to them and say, no, 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 I know that all the other guys have made particular truth claims to you, and I'm telling you to forget all that because I've got my own little truth claim here. We're not, tr we're not countering their truth claim with our truth claim. Sure, our, our truth claim is true, right? it's got that advantage, but you can have an orthodox cor corpse maintaining true things. There are orthodox corpses saying true things. Sure, claim and counterclaim, they say, and everybody does that. But we are not simply claiming to have the secret cheat codes of the cosmos, doctrine X as opposed to doctrine Y. Rather, we are claiming something else entirely, something which, if true, cannot be denied by anybody cannot be denied by them, cannot be denied by the people watching, and cannot be denied by you. We are claiming to be alive. That's what the claim is. 
we are claiming to be alive. We have been born again. God has granted us the glorious miracle of the new birth. And when asked about it, the questioner discovers that we are alive because Jesus is alive. We do make truth claims, and the truth claims that we make are true, and it's necessary that they be true. If they weren't true, they wouldn't have the effect that they have. But you don't stop. You don't, you're not watching the video of Elijah on Mount Carmel having a showdown with the priests of Baal and, look, and say, oh, here's an interesting study in comparative religion. We have an altar, and we have people dancing around the altar, and they're praying to their God. And then you have a prophet, a lone prophet comes up, and he prays at the same altar, and he's praying to his God. How interesting. And in fact, if you analyze Baal worship, you can see that it has content XYZ. And if you look at the Hebraic uh, religion faith that is represented by men like Elijah, we can see that the truth claims are very, very different. Yes, okay, fine. Yeah, that's tr all true. That, all of that's true. But let's watch the rest of the video. Let's, let's go to the part of the, where the fire falls. The fire comes down from heaven. When, one, when, when the idolaters pray, nothing happens. When the, when the worshipers of the true God pray, God answers, and God answers with fire. When we pray to God, he answers with life. When they pray to God, it's just death and more death. You just move, you're just moving around in death. You're, you're trying to... You're trying to get your life together by rearranging the furniture. Uh, you know, I'm, my house is filthy. I guess I'll move the sofa. My, it's still filthy. A week later, it's still filthy. Let's, let's move the furniture out and let's move some stuff into the den. You just rearrange the furniture. It's all death. It's all filthy. It's all wrong. What we're talking about is something else entirely. The content of what we're claiming, uh, Jesus Christ is God incarnate. Jesus Christ is our Savior. He's our Messiah. That's true, and what they're claiming about whatever, their God, whatever claims they're making about their God is false, but we don't stop there. The God who answers with life, He is the true God. The God who is life, the God who gives Himself as life, and the God who communicates that life to us, He is the true God. He is the living God. The new birth provides real certainty. This is what it actually means to be evangelical. It means to be quickened. It means life. Remember the lust for worldliness that used to have you trapped. The lust for worldliness that used to have you trapped. Remember the lies that you would tell yourself in order to justify staying trapped in that sweet prison. Now, in contrast to all that, the gospel means life. The gospel brings life. Chapter 5, verse 11. And this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. If you have the Son, you have life, because the Son is that life, and if you don't have the Son, you don't have that life. You can't have that life. God has nothing in the, in the last resort. God has nothing to give to us but himself. And when he gives himself to us, we come alive. We can't, there's no other way. You can't receive him and not receive life. You can't be in fellowship with him and not be in fellowship with life. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And remember our text, this is the true God and eternal life. 
the true God and eternal life are the same thing. It all amounts to the same thing. This is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. This life is not impersonal. This life is not impersonal. This is not some sort of spiritual joy juice. This is not some kind of impersonal spiritual electricity. God gives himself. Remember our text, back to to verse 20. And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. When we come to God, when we turn to God, when we call upon God, we are calling upon him to raise us from the dead. And you might say, well, how can a corpse ask for anything? Well, that's another glorious thing. A corpse can't. Uh, When a corpse starts asking God to be made alive, that's a sure proof that God's already answering. God's already at work. When, When Jesus Christ summoned Lazarus out of the tomb, When Jesus Christ said, Lazarus, come forth, this was not a cooperative effort between Jesus and Lazarus. Jesus was not pulling and Lazarus pushing. Lazarus did nothing. Lazarus was the corpse. But Jesus commanded the corpse to do something. Lazarus come forth, and his command brought about the life. His command, when, when he said, Lazarus, come forth, all of a sudden Lazarus was able to come forth. When Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, he was presupposing life and in the command was bestowing life. When God says, come with me, son, come with me, girl, when God says to you, it's time for you to be converted, time time for you to become a Jesus freak, you say, yes, sir. And you say, yes, sir, because you've already been quickened. You've already been brought to life. Now, the Bible throughout, we we don't have to sort out all the issues associated with the sovereignty of God. We just have to accept it. We know that the Bible tells us to repent. The Bible tells us to believe. It also tells us that these things are the gift of God. But as a preacher of the gospel, I'm commanded, I'm required to proclaim the gospel, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, to proclaim it to everyone. It says that at the end of, to, at the end of Mark, it says that we're to preach the gospel to every creature. So I'm to pro- proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection to everyone. to preach the gospel to everyone. And when it comes time for people to respond to that gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection, ascension of Jesus, that's the objective gospel. The subjective response to that gospel is repent and believe. Repent of your sins. Remember I said before, we live in death. It's nothing but death. We live in death. Repent means turning away from that dropping that, changing your mind about that, being sick to death of that death. That's what repentance is. You turn away from death. You turn away from the death that has been your way of life. It says in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. This is the way of death in which we used to walk when the prince of the power of the air had us. So you turn away from that. You repent of death. You repent of the death you're living in, and you turn to the God who is the only true life. You turn away from death, and you turn to life. Repent and believe. And it's the same motion. If, if death is over here and life is over here, you can't turn away from death without turning toward life in the same motion. It's all the same motion. 
Repentance away from death is repentance toward God. It's, it's faith in God. It's belief in God. And you say, well, I, 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 I want this, but I, I don't know how. To, I'm stuck. I'm trapped in death. Your fists are full of the driveway gravel of death. Your fists are full of pebbles, death pebbles. What do I do? You say, oh, I've got this grip on these death pebbles. What do you do? Drop them. Turn your hands this way and do this. And you say, but I can't do this unless God gives that to me. Yes, but he is, right? Uh, this, is, this is the moment where God is speaking to you. The Holy Spirit's dealing with you. Turn your hands this way and let go. And then turn your hands back again and he fills your hands with diamonds. You can't have those diamonds when you're hanging onto the rocks. When you're hanging onto the old rocks, you can't, your, your hands can't receive what your death grip on your, the ways of death are excluding. You, you can't hold two things at one time. You can't have death and life at the same time. No man can serve two masters, Jesus says. It's either death or it's life. And if it's death, you die. And if it's life, you live forever. If it's death, you die. And if it's life, you live forever. This is what the whole message is all about. This is what gospel is all about. This is what the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was intended to bring about. You want to see, he wants to see, he in, intends to see a dead world quickened, a dead world brought to life. He intends to have the black and white world turn into color. He intends to have the dead world, the corpse world, turn into a body of living saints, giving glory to him forever and ever. That's his purpose. That's his intention. That's the gospel of life. And here it is again. And we know, do we not? We know that the Son of God is come. He did come. He was manifested 2,000 years ago, but the Holy Spirit who did that is the same Holy Spirit who is present here today. The Holy Spirit that caused Jesus to be conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary is the Holy Spirit who is going to bring that about in you and in me. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and that we are in him that is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God. This is eternal life. Our Father and God, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for all that you've given to us. We thank you for this gospel. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be, in fact, present here. I pray that you'd be drawing to yourself anyone who does not know you, anyone who has been living in death, whether it's religious death or the death of a secular kind of death, I pray that you'd give them true life. Father, I pray that you would help make us all mindful of this as we go out into the world, simply wanting not to do this or that thing primarily, but to just go out into a dead world as living sons and daughters. Here at this table, we remember and are reminded of the gospel. So remember that gospel means good news. Here, we celebrate the body and blood of Jesus Christ. We celebrate his body broken and his blood shed in our place for our sins, which simply means that this meal is for sinners. This meal is for screw-ups. This meal is for those who know they need a savior. This meal is not for good people who have it all together. This meal is not for perfect marriages perfect families, perfect kids, perfect parents, or perfect roommates or neighbors. 
This meal is for fornicators and adulterers and homosexuals, for thieves and liars, for prostitutes and tax collectors, for murderers and rapists, for blasphemers and for those who have dishonored their parents, for complainers and gossips and those who have lost their temper in rage. And what you find here is Christ who was crucified for those sins. You find his body broken and his blood shed to take away those sins. You cannot come here and hold on to those sins. But if you're ready to be rid of them, Christ is here, ready to set you free. Christ is here, ready to wash you completely clean. And so you are invited, and you are most welcome here. This is good news. This is the gospel. Are you a sinner? Then you qualify. Do you need grace? Then come. Do you need wisdom? This meal is for you. Are you anxious, worried, fearful, heartbroken? Then come to Christ. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. As Pastor Doug was preaching this morning, I was reminded of a conversation I had with a Muslim man on campus just a couple of weeks ago. As I introduced myself and began explaining the gospel to him, he kind of interrupted me and just looked me in the eye and said, but do you have peace? And I, and I thought, well, or I thought I was going to explain the incarnation and the Trinity and stuff. And, and I did. I started explaining those things. But then again, at the end of the conversation, he looked back at me and just said, but do you have peace? And, and I realized, you know, you might, you might as well have just said, but are you really alive? Are you really alive? And of course, all those things matter. I'm alive because of the incarnation. I'm alive because of the Trinity. But yes, we're alive. That's what the world's looking for. In a dead world, the dead world is looking for life. And we've been given life in his son. You've been given that life. So you have life to share. You have life to give. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And amen.